Hello and welcome to Economic and Political Weekly's podcast show Research Radio. I'm your host Abhishek and every Monday we'll be talking to academics about their research methodology and process, what they didn't include in their research, how research can further equity and much more. This week we'll be focusing on untouchability in India, which castes and religions practice it, what factors such as education can potentially reduce its prevalence and whether those who practice it know members outside their communities and much more. Two scholars who have analyzed the findings of a nationally representative survey of over 42,000 households will be joining us today to share their insights. Professor Amit Thorat teaches economics at the Center for the Study of Regional Development, Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Omkar Joshi is a doctoral scholar at the Department of Sociology at the University of Maryland in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Your research shifts the object of study in academic research from groups who are marginalized to those who perpetuate and benefit from the marginalization as well. Would you like to start by telling us why you took this approach? Till now there is there've been lot of studies and lot of research that's Dr. Thorat uh, which look at the economic, social, health and educational all kinds of well-being outcomes for the ex-untouchables and also their continued kind of discrimination and exclusion and also violence so there is a lot of lot of studies there but there was hardly any study we felt that which looked at the root of the problem which is a mindset or a prejudice which emanates from people's beliefs so the idea was to basically shift the focus away from the victims of this practice who suffer this its consequences to people who believe in this practice and perpetuate it so if we want to change this practice we have to look at those who who practice it right what were people asked in the survey and what were some of the considerations you made while framing the questions this was a face to face survey and uh, most of the questions not all but the schedule in which the, these questions were included were asked to the head of the household and the question which was asked was uh, to the head was that does any member of uh, their family practice untouchability and if the response was a yes that was re- recorded and if the response was a negative saying no nobody in the family practice untouchability we had a follow up question which was then would it be okay if a person who belong to a scheduled caste community were to use your utensils or be in your house and could freely enter the kitchen etc and the response to that question uh, a yes or no was also recorded in fact we had many questions uh, in mind but because uh, this survey is a panel which means that exactly the same questions were asked in 2004-5 we didn't have much space in our questionnaire we were limited by print space by time and uh, financial consideration so we decided instead of having a plethora of questions why not just ask a direct question uh, to the head of the household uh, about whether anyone in the family practice untouchability or not what was it about food that made it important to focus on to understand untouchability i mean one one reason why we sort of asked a probing question is and that's omkar uh, many times and specifically about the food or uh, entering in the kitchen uh, and using the utensils is because because people know at least today that basically untouchability is illegal to practice and sometimes if you confront them directly as our first question sort of did may not admit to the practice and rather give an answer which is politically correct and so that's why that the second question 
question was sort of also to probe and uh, get at it further. Uh, even when they say that uh, untouchability is not practiced by them, uh, if they are practicing behaviors which are sort of associated with untouchability and they may not recognize that it is untouchability or they may think that it doesn't constitute as untouchability, yet still practice those behaviors, then we would still get the behavioral sort of practice of untouchability. If you ask this second question, which is whether ex-untouchable person can enter your house or use a touch or use a utensil, it goes at the very core of the idea of purity in pollution, which is that the home is a spiritually, ritually pure space where you have your gods which are prayed to and then they spiritually uh, that uh, they, they, the house and the area has become pure and the kitchen has food in it where food is cooked which you ingest so anything which is which is thought to be spiritually ritually or even literally polluting which could be that the touch of a particular person could then defile or pollute the food which we which people will ingest so that is something which could be i mean people may sit in public spaces and interact with people from various groups and communities and overt forms of untouchability uh, may not exist and they may not be cognizant of the, those. But when it comes to these two aspects, entry into the house and the sanctum sanctorum kind of a thing and the kitchen where food is cooked, there there is no ambiguity in, uh, in terms of the fact that you know people would want to behave in this particular manner i think so that second question then really drives home the idea of purity pollution and forces people to think and then respond right and transitioning to the findings of your research i wanted to know about the process of sanskritization where marginalized castes attempt to um, emulate brahmanical practices a trend that was theorized by mn srinivas do your findings support this theory? When our results came out and we looked at the uh, groups who are practicing untouchability, we found uh, that nationally about 50-55% of the Brahmins reported uh, that they practice untouchability, which was not very surprising. But we also found the middle groups like the forward caste, 33%, OBC, 22%, some ST and SC practicing untouchability. So uh, that is where this idea which of sensitization comes back to us that why are communities who traditionally are not middle caste and uh, even lower middle caste why are they practicing untouchability and is it this desire to emulate the norms ritual practices of the upper caste to kind of appease them and be recognized them gain favor and kind of rise in social hierarchy so the concept of sanskritization does not apply completely or rather applies to this extent that yes, the middle communities are trying to gain favor by practicing untouchability against the ex, uh, uh, against the Dalits or the ex-untouchables. But it is also not true in the sense that earlier there was scope uh, for uh, certain sub-castes or castes to even rise in caste hierarchy, being granted a higher status by say the king or a uh, you know etc but that uh, is not possible in in our modern times so i think it is both true and false at the same time that a part of this desire to emulate the behavior of the upper caste is, is explained by sanskritization but there is no real upward mobility as such uh, i would like to think that way and uh, we also find that uh, if you look at religious groups uh, like the Muslims, 18% of Muslims, 23% of Sikhs, and we talked about Jains in such a great detail, but 35% of the national sample of Jains uh, reports practicing untouchability. And these groups clearly, because they're outside the Hindu fold, somehow will not 
I mean, they can hope to get get favor or be seen favorably favorably by the upper caste, but they are not going to rise within their their religious folds uh, by discriminating because Sikhism, Jainism, Islam, or Muslims inherently do not have an idea of. Uh, this hierarchical division of people and uh, a graded inequality built into their so-called value system or religious pantheons. But the fact that they are practicing it, to my mind, is a kind of a a psychological baggage which they carry from their uh, earlier religious beliefs uh, if they were part of the Hindu religion and they then converted to, say, Islam or uh, Sikhism or, or Jainism, they still carried this baggage with them. This this belief of uh, purity and pollution, and even after conversion, you see that within Islam, within Sikhism, and within Jains, this practice is being reported by them. I would say this is sort of a characteristic of, by and large, Indian subcontinent societal systems. Having this sort of a hierarchical ordering of castes or social divisions, where, uh, yes, the the theological explanation for that comes from the sort of this, what Amit called as the purity and pollution doctrine uh, amongst the Hindu religion per se, But uh, you see that even in Islam and Christianity, uh, these divisions exist. For example, in case of Muslims, there are these groups like uh, Ashrafs and Ajlafs and Arzals, which basically sort of allude to not untouchability directly, but sort of a biased and discriminatory uh, hierarchical practices where sort of Ashrafs trace their origin to more noble-blooded Persian or uh, Arabian empire, in the past and the Arzals or the Ajlafs who sort of are either coming from the erstwhile lower caste Hindus who then sort of got converted or accepted Islam as their religion. But uh, even after sort of, as Amit was mentioning, even after changing religion, that practice of sort of distancing and uh, having this kind of a hierarchical unequal treatment didn't go away. Uh, In case of Christians also, uh, you see that that practice has uh, sort of persisted to the extent that in uh, in in some of the villages and towns in Tamil Nadu, like Trichy, for example, there are separate symmetries which are on the lines of the higher caste and lower caste divisions kind of a thing. So even those who were who are practicing Christianity and who belong to formerly untouchable uh, Hindu groups such as Dalits, they are sort of allocated a separate burial space on one side of the cemetery, uh, while the other Christians who uh, who could be either the upper caste converts or the original uh, practice practitioners of Christianity are buried on the other side. And so this kind of a division, it it sort of transcends the sort of boundaries of Hinduism and becomes then the whole societal feature of a subcontinent. That's so insightful. And it shows the extent to which caste has become a fundamental way of ordering society in South Asia. Another aspect of your research was also trying to understand whether practices of untouchability would vary based on how many contacts one has within and outside their community. Can you share more about this? Before I sort of go on to the actual operationalization of how we come up with this contacts. I wanted to say that the the main uh, interest in sort of looking at this came from the social networks uh, approach or theory, if you will. 
whereby basically there is a uh, there is a theory which talk which is called as contact theory or exposure theory it is very much like there in sociology in political science to look at uh, what happens when different groups come into contact with each other and the idea is that if you know any particular sort of a community has uh, contacts both within its own community as well as outside its own own community then the sort of belief patterns or behavioral patterns tend to sort of intermingle and so the idea is that the biases which are uh, held by that community will get sort of muted or you know in you know, a reduced over a period of time because you are getting exposed to different ideas you are coming into contact with people who may not sort of subscribe to your own belief system and that sort of gives you a chance to think about your own belief systems and so we hypothesize that uh, if a household had a larger social network outside its own caste group then the chance that that household practices untouchability would be less so we had uh, in our survey questions about uh, social networks and the we, we we sort of asked the question to the household if you or any members of your household have sort of personal acquaintance and contacts with someone who works in different occupations let's say doctors lawyers engineers government employees police military etc etc and then we asked among those acquaintances that you have in these do you have those acquaintances belonging to your caste and community or they are sort of outside the community and caste realm so let's say i had let's say four friends you know who who i know are doctors for example then the the question is how many of those doctors are actually belonging to the same community that i belong to and how many come from the outside community or caste that i belong to so this is how we sort of operationalize the number of contacts or social networks and so so we we sort of hypothesize that the households with larger number of contacts which is sort of in general a, a proxy for social network they will have lower chance of practice of untouchability and uh, some of it could be due to the exposure due to different ideas and some of it could be due to the fact that as you come into contact with larger and larger networks it is practically not feasible always to enact on your personal beliefs in social settings and so we found that practice of untouchability is seen to be lower uh, in case of those households that uh, had a larger outside community contacts there is a negative association between the number of contacts outside your community to the practice of untouchability when we say contacts or acquaintances typically if you were to go to a village i suppose and ask someone this kind of questions what ends up happening is in a village everyone ends up knowing everyone else when we say acquaintance we made sure that our respondents understood that we mean really close acquaintance and which we defined as people who you know within your community or outside your community from all the various occupations which omkar just mentioned but you know them well enough for the, uh, them to visit your home for you to visit their house and also dine with each other so it's not it's just not an acquaintance in the sense that you live next door to me and i wish you every day and i know who you are and what you do uh, but i have no social contact or any relevance with any kind of engagement with you it is a little uh, a step ahead that they visit your house you visit their house and there is food being shared 
so that is exactly what we mean by a strong social contact right and so much about how caste benefits some and subordinates others is based on social networks is there anything else you'd like to add about contacts and social networks another important sort of a factor which influences this behavior or practice of untouchability is education i mean one would think that's the natural candidate which comes to our mind where the generally accepted idea is that as people get more and more education then the biases that they carry uh, get reduced i mean at least the explicit biases so, such as sort of untouchability which is sort of the most extreme form of bias so our results sort of look at what's the effect of education a level of education on practice of untouchability and we sort of show that basically households the percentage of households practicing untouchability goes down with a rise in the level of education so and specifically we found that as you move from your 10th standard and 12th standard which is sort of moving beyond the high school kind of education so you have some exposure to the college and uh, or some sort of a graduate degree or some sort of a diploma then the chances of practicing untouchability reduce substantially so as the level of education rises to sort of higher secondary or some college uh, and graduation and diploma then the odds of practicing untouchability at the household level falls by 23 to 24% respectively yeah so so basically education is clearly one factor which sort of leads to sort of at least a change in orthodoxy and the sort of a conservative kind of a mindset however we have to bear in mind that the question is asked to the head of the household who responds whether any member in the family practices untouchability or not and it is the level of education of that person the head of the household with which we are correlating this so we find that as the level of education of the head of the household increases reporting of the practice of untouchability is going down so that is the effect we capture essentially i think it's not just head of the household but any adult i mean yes head could be one of those but it's essentially the adult education level uh, in the in the in the household yeah exactly the education level of the uh, highest uh, or most aged adult which tends to be the may not be not necessarily be the head of the household but uh, the so now what does that show that in the household there is a high level of education at least one member a senior member has education and as this education increases by households uh, the practice is going down so it could indicate that education has an effect now what we did in uh, another survey we asked the same questions uh, in another survey which probably we shouldn't talk about right now but i'm just going to mention it was a telephonic survey called sari social attitude research for india and uh, we asked the same exactly exact two questions to all our respondents the only difference in this case was that we asked this question to the respondent uh, saying does any member of your family practice untouchability etc etc and the second part and then once that was over we asked does the respondent herself or himself practice untouchability yes or no and then we also asked the level of education of the person so there was a direct correlation between the person's education level and his or her accepting to the practice of untouchability 
And sadly, when we looked at the age differentials or educational differentials, there was not much difference, unfortunately. There was some difference, but not as much as we find from ISDS. So that has, we can talk about it later. Right. And I just realized this, but since households are usually male-headed and this research surveyed heads of households, I wanted to know if the research took into account the impact of gender and patriarchy and practices of untouchability. So, I mean, it's you, it's sad that because the share of female-headed household is low, the gender aspect we were unable to capture in the ISDS face-to-face survey. However, again, going back to the SARI survey, where we had respondents both as male and female, and we asked the same question to a male respondent and a female respondent. So we asked the female respondent, does anyone in her family practice untouchability? And uh, after she responds to that, then we ask her, does she herself practice untouchability? And the same for men and women, uh, same for men. Now, we what we find there is women tend to report the practice of untouchability much more, both for their family and for themselves than the males. So here I'll give an example. In rural Uttar Pradesh, when we asked this question to women, 62-63% of women said that someone in their family practices untouchability. This is completely representative of rural UP based on census right now, yes. But when the same question was asked to the males, uh, only 42% of males said that someone in their family. So about 20% reduction in, in reporting across gender for the same question. And when we ask the respondent about their own practice, self-practice, about 50% women said they practice untouchability, whereas about 26-27% of males report practicing untouchability themselves. So in both the questions, we found the women to be, their responses were much, much higher than that of the males. And what this does say, we don't know whether the females are more honest or uh, the males are more politically giving more politically correct answers and you know so that's all open to you know uh, speculation in both your responses i noticed that you use the word reported to understand practices of untouchability so essentially one has to admit to practice untouchability and you've written in the article that the findings on prevalence of untouchability are likely to be much higher in practice how did you attempt to navigate this as researchers i think one one uh, sort of a constraint or often uh, face-to-face uh, interviews or survey uh, surveys which are conducted they face is that uh, people are uh, less likely to admit to behaviors which carry stigma which have some sort of a taboo or which is not considered to be morally good kind of a behavior i mean we are here in this paper, we are talking about untouchability, but you could apply the similar logic to other kind of behaviors. For example, if we ask questions about whether you indulge in smoking and drinking, for example, let's say which in India normatively are considered as taboo or what we call as bad behaviors per se. I mean, the norms are changing definitely, but still by and large, this sort of a a stigma or taboo is prevalent about drinking and smoking. And then you you would see that people would often not admit to that behavior or they would sort of give politically correct answers so if if it is considered as a taboo they will say well i don't do it or they will say i do it only occasionally those kind of you know responses there so there is a clear under reporting which stems from what in survey research is called as social desirability bias 
Because IHDS was a face-to-face interview, a respondent would be shy to accept, you know, embarrassed to accept that, yes, someone in my family or practices untouchability, uh, you know, while facing someone who looks like a student who has come to interview you, is educated, looks a little urban, and you feel humiliated to accept that. So that's why we find that the urban reportage of the practice is much, much lower, 20-20%, whereas rural is a little higher, 30%. Now, when the same question was asked in the face in the telephonic survey as I mentioned earlier because there is no face-to-face interview there is some person who's calling you the, uh, the person never asks the respondent his or her name or uh, ge- look address just generally whether you're in a rural area are you educated etc then uh, the person feels a little more comfortable in opening up I think because they think because they're not identified they can come out and say whatever they feel like so we find that uh, the percentages of reporting of practice of untouchability go up in a telephonic survey. And whereas in our uh, this study where we use data from a face-to-face survey, it would be very safe to assume that there is under-reporting because people will just deny, no, we don't practice it. I don't understand your question. I don't want to answer your question. I don't get it. They can come up with all sorts of, you know, excuses. Right. And usually scholarly research is presented as highly accurate representation of reality as being quote-unquote objective. However, you're detailing the ways in which even the method in which information is gathered influences what we know about the practice. How might future studies and surveys get to a more accurate picture? So we were uh, constrained by all limitations of a large nationally representative survey. We had to ask a direct question. So I, I was responsible for the training of interviewers and we did a lot of session with the interviewers in the field. We took them into the field and observed them about asking the questions. And our basic methodology or our instruction to them was to ask the question as neutrally as possible because it's a very controversial question. Even in the telephonic survey, all the questions were asked in a neutral, flat tone without any insinuations to any kind of expected responses or bias, etc. However, uh, these are still questions being asked directly, but I think there is a lot of value to uh, qualitative surveys where you do ethnographic kind of questioning, where you talk to the person, you, 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 you just engage in a communication and slowly win their trust. And indirectly, you can then ask them about their life stories, their social behavior, their personal behavior, and they will open up to you and tell you uh, how they behave, what they think, what they do in a greater detail. But that means then you have to spend hours with one interviewer and then you can't do a large national or even a large survey at a state level. Then it's a small case study and there are lots of examples of those case studies on untouchability and various other forms and practices of untouchability performed. But those would be then those would be then restricted to like a group of villages, 50 villages, 80 villages, because you have to go in depth into that. So that, that is, there is a value to that because it brings out and fleshes out the details of the social behavior and the harsher forms of that reality. However, uh, because we were doing a large survey, our value is in the fact that here we have one figure or a one, one estimation of this practice at rural and urban level for the entire nation. And we can also go down to sub uh, groups and, and we can also go down to state level, uh, at least for the larger state and rank the states. Yeah, and I think one of the sort of research direction which stems from it is you see that, I mean, as we had mentioned it in the beginning of this interview is that it's not just those who are 
traditionally believed to be practicing untouchability but people uh, i mean households or people belonging to other communities religious communities and caste for example obcs or sikhs and jains are also reported to practice untouchability and so one way uh, in which we can sort of expand on this paper or continue our research in that direction is to look at closer ex- sort of exploration of practices by subcastes within each broad caste groups because there is a lot of diversity within caste groups so even if you say uh, other backward classes which is sort of a, an odd nomenclature which has this you know aggregation of various castes which are not exactly in the hierarchy at the top neither are they at the bottom but they fall somewhere in the middle so you have these traders and self occupied professionals who sort of classify who get classified as obcs in indian context uh, but there is a lot of variation within that group and what we here are operationalizing is the standard kind of a categorization into groups which are basically recognized at the official level the scs the sts the forward caste and the obcs but within each of this bin there are lot of differences and there is lot of variation between subcaste behavior so that is another way to sort of build on this piece of research and expand it further which uh, at some point we would like to do and can you share some unanswered questions that you continue to investigate one option is to look at a subcaste level to go within say brahmins and say within obcs obc is a big group 40% of our population is obc and uh, when 23% of the obc say they practice untouchability we want to know who amongst the obc are practicing untouchability they are also the recipient of uh, affirmative action in india so here's a dichotomy they are they are seen as the oppressed group and are getting state sanctioned uh, reservations but at the same time they are also practicing this uh, this practice of untouchability so there is this question there are so many questions that throws this this throws up what do you see as the role of your academic research in terms of furthering equity both inside and outside institutional spaces after untouchability was sort of banned and it was considered illegal uh, our constitution sort of considered is uh, i mean it's not just illegal but it is also unconstitutional uh, and so but despite that we still have uh, this practice which is prevalent in the society and that's the first step to sort of acknowledge that and if we acknowledge that then basically within academy as well as outside academia in other social spaces it opens up space for introspection and discussion about what is it that is sort of leading to this continued practice and what are at the same time some of the mitigating influences i think that's the title of our paper so what are the factors which uh, reduce this kind of a behavior uh, at the same time what are the factors that sort of lead to a continuation of this sort of behavior in society so that discussion space is very important i believe I also feel that there is hope and the way in which uh, some of the the results show uh, that education is one uh, candidate urbanization is another candidate where basically at least now there is a recognition that this is something which is not good and that sort of a sense comes out of you know as we we say as you you know continue to interact with people and share ideas and talk and discuss 
because behaviors are at the same time really hard to change i mean legislation has its place in changing behaviors but i also feel that at a societal level if there is this wider dialogue among communities and between communities both ways then then there is hope of sort of moving ahead and getting better and sort of getting rid of some of these practices that are prevalent has this article and its findings had a life of its own outside the pages of epw i had sent a small piece out of this to a newspaper leading newspaper of india uh, hoping it will just be in one of the opinion spaces and it so turns out that it was made a, a headlines out of and the next day i saw the headlines read 30% of rural india or of india practices untouchability and i was like oh my god Uh, this is going to create a lot of noise this is going to create a lot of controversy is going to come back to me and i was kind of anxious and it did lead to a lot of online conversation and uh, the comments and the conversations below the the article were quite engaging but on the whole i would like to say almost 90% of the people were shocked to hear that this was the extent of extent of this practice and uh, they seem to say that this is shameful and we should work to and were the people who were shocked largely upper caste well we can't really say because these are people with online identities they have a name and they have maybe some of them have a picture with along that identity it's a comment on the uh, news thread etc Uh, but i would i would say that people accessing internet online you know media uh, etc would be usually usually i i can't really claim but there were also a handful of people from marginalized communities who were also making statements and there was a whole lot of discussion and debate happening but i think they would be mostly urban middle middle upper middle class little bit of educated people who could understand the results and make like a conversation and argue point by point so uh, i think that is my guess but most of them were shocked and they made a healthy conversation so that was one so that was encouraging the second thing was that i think someone picked it up uh, one of the members of parliament and asked this question to the then uh, minister of social justice and empowerment that look your government in your manifesto says that you'll do something to reduce untouchability and here is a study which shows that it is still prevalent etc etc what are you doing about it i'm not going to take names but the minister got to us or the, the ministry got to us and asked us whether this was a study which we had done and we said yes and they said can we share it with them the details of it and we did share it with them we made a three or four page notes with all the details though the report wasn't published but we did send it and said this is perfectly fine go ahead you can use it and this happened twice they asked uh, the same thing again after 3 months and finally what was reported in the parliament was that the report isn't published as yet so rather than engaging what omkar was saying that you know have a wider conversation about it bring it out in the open have a healthy conversation debate about it that what didn't happen it was kind of not taken up seriously the positive thing is that education urbanization and out of community network which our results show has a beneficial effect or tends to mitigate the practice of untouchability i think we need to look deeper in all three of this 
education but what kind of education urbanization but yes we also know there is immense segregation and ghettoization in urban cities so it is helping but to what extent can we do something more to make the if it pronounce and if out of community interaction is going to reduce this practice is there something we can do at a community level or at a social level so i think if we go into these factors in more detail we'll find that there is a whole lot of scope to for policy for legislation for communities to come in and expand on this that was a lot of rich and detailed information thank you so much for sharing with us dr thorat and joshi thank you abhishek i mean we as academicians write the very technical papers right we need to get published but the story behind it the mindset and the idea behind it i think it comes out through this conversation and thank you very much i am at least glad that we sort of went to not just the findings of the paper but also the research process the thoughts behind it and then how it would sort of open up space for research and a dialogue on this issue so thank you they said that based on their findings education and urbanization reduced the reporting of practicing untouchability However, what I liked most from the interview was what Dr. Thorat said that this needs to be probed deeper to understand the kind of urbanization and education that can be effective given stark segregation in cities and distortions to educational curriculum. I feel that can change the way that untouchability and other caste-based discrimination can continue to practice even among educated and urban people. The full article published by APW is full of graphs and many more details. We've also made an infographic based on it. I've shared links to both in the description of this episode and I do recommend reading them. We have a very exciting podcast lined up for you next week and to make sure you don't miss out on it, subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Jio Savan or wherever else you get your podcasts from. This is the 8th episode of our new season and we would love to hear from you about how we're doing. Send us an email at social@epw.in or message us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter with your feedback. And if you like what we're doing, please share it with interested folks. Take care and do join us next week.